This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Right, this is the continuation in a series that we've been looking at in relation to life and death. And on this occasion, we're going to be looking at the aspect of, do we go to heaven? Uh, So I won't be mentioning hell because that's next week's subject. So I will be not uh, touching on that. But just to sort of start with, we have to accept that there are many, many concepts in the world in relation to what happens after we die. Um, There is those who consider that there is nothing. Uh, These individuals, humanists, atheists, agnostics, and certain other sort of uh, more ancient religions believe that there was nothing after you died, uh, that there was no place that you went. The concept of heaven and hell as a place where we would go to after we die is certainly present in uh, a number of religions, including some Christian denominations, but also in Egyptian uh, religion, the Greeks, the Romans. All of these had a place which you went to after you died, very often depending on how you had conducted yourself in this life. Some religions have the concept of reincarnation, but even they usually have an end point, a point at which you reach a wonderful place, a nirvana place. So even in those um, religions where there's a constant cycle of return to the earth in their belief system, um, there is also uh, an end point. But there are also those who believe in a physical resurrection on this earth, that there is no intermediate state between dying and then resurrecting in a physical form, in a physical body here on this earth. So this certainly is true within Christian, you know, some Christian denominations and also within other religions as well. So there is a very wide variety of ideas in relation to what happens after we die. And it is not surprising when people look at this. Uh, you know, certainly people who have maybe not um, linked to any one of those religions, if they look at it as a whole, even if they just look at Christianity, uh, the Christian denominations, they may feel that there is such a, a wide uh, belief uh, in, you know, sort of a wide set of beliefs in relation to what happens after we die, and especially you know, in relation to the, the concept of heaven and what it represents and what it is, um, that it, I must admit it, it's quite uh, understandable that it might put them off. Um, a, a, a phrase that I do, I do like is that, yeah, everybody is going to hell according to somebody's religion, and presumably uh, everybody is going to heaven according to somebody else's religion. So there is a lot of you know, ideas out there. There are those, those certainly who would be atheists, who would say, well, actually, this is all just about comfort and consolation. It's just a way of you know, us as humans dealing with death and how we can then uh, comfort ourselves by the thought that uh, you know, people uh, who've, uh, who've uh, you know, died have gone somewhere else. That's certainly their belief. And what we would say is that at the moment, uh, we certainly do not have any physical evidence. We cannot do any scientific evidence. There's no scientific evidence that any part of us continues on after death or leaves our body and, and goes elsewhere. So that, that's the situation we find ourselves in. So the question we want to look at tonight is, yeah, what does the Bible tell us and how does it sort of give us a, a, some clarity on this subject? Now, in terms of 
different Christian denominations. We're all meant to be working from the same text, from you know, God's word, the Bible. Uh, and therefore, again, people then say, well, yeah, there must be, you know, it can't be reliable because so many people come up with so many different uh, interpretations of the same work. Well, there's a reason for that. And, and we'll see as we go through uh, you know, this afternoon, we'll see some of those ideas coming out. There will be those who will use texts other than the Bible to justify their position. Now, we're not going to look into that because our focus is on the Word of God, which we believe is unique, uh, and that there are no other texts alongside of it that have any status. So there are those who would look to that, and that, that obviously gives them a very clear way of changing what the meaning is if they're not actually using the Bible. On the other hand, there are those who may select, you know, take certain passages and misinterpret them, take them out of context. And we'll see that very clearly in relation to the word heaven and in the concept of heaven in the Bible. Very often it's because certain passages have been taken out of context uh, and that has changed the meaning of them uh, and they've used it uh, to justify uh, particular interpretations of, of heaven. And we'll see that in certain cases people have taken as literal things that are meant to be representative so passages in the bible which are there to give us uh, an image of the future uh, but are represent you know they are they are representative they are not a, a literal account of uh, actual events but they are creating imagery to give us information uh, about the nature of, of the uh, you know the kingdom to come and on of our lives so we'll see that as we go through in some of the examples that we have so just thinking of the word heaven and how it appears within the Bible. Well in the Hebrew uh, the word that's used is Samian. And that is translated in a number of different ways. You can see either as heaven or heavens, fairly obvious. But also they can be translated as air and skies. So very much can represent physical uh, things as well it can represent the air above us the sky above us it's the same word that is used for them all so therefore it's very much about the context it's you know how the word is interpreted is related to the context it's in so yes we can see uh, that's what it means in the greek we have the same concept the word the word heaven that's translated as heaven represents the same idea it represents the sky the air above the earth but in the right context it also represents God's dwelling place so again within the context of the, the passage it's in that will give you information as to what how the how it should be interpreted so we see in the new testament that's those are the words used so we can see that the word heaven or heavens is used extensively throughout the bible and it's used Right from Genesis, the beginning of the, the Bible, all the way through to Revelation at the end of the Bible. So it's a, a phrase and a concept that is used throughout Scripture. So if we just think of the concept of the heaven as being the sky above us, we get passages like this. So right back at the beginning. So we're right back, as, as, back, as far back in the Bible as you can go, to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And just later on, in verse 8, he says, And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And we also get this uh, you know, in verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So we're talking about the stars and the sun and the moon and all the planets. They are there. So we're definitely talking about the physical sky above us, the physical uh, yeah, sort of air above us, that is what these words are talking about. It's not talking about 
the dwelling place of God. It's not talking about uh, anything else. It's talking about that, that, that's what it's representing. So, in most, in many occasions, when you know it's uh, you know talking about heaven in the Bible, this is what it's talking about. And yes, we you know, see that emphasised in Jeremiah when he he talks about as the stars of heaven cannot be numbered. So that's one way in which the word heaven is used uh, within the Bible. The one that most people are probably thinking of when they mention heaven is as the dwelling place of God. And we see that that is definitely the case. Because we see, yeah, this is from 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 30, we have these words. And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray towards this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. So again, it's made quite a place that this is a, a separate place. This, this place of heaven can also be the dwelling place of God. We get this you know, in, in Second Chronicles. Again he said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. So we get a concept of a place where there is you know, God's dwelling place. But also we'll see the dwelling place of the angelic angels. We get this uh, also in Second Chronicles a bit further on in that book. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place even unto heaven. So there we get the idea that this is a holy dwelling place. And there they get the concept of the holy which is a word that means separate. It means separated from. The place, the heaven, the where God dwells is separate from the world that we see, the world around it. It is not a place we can reach. It is not a place we can touch or see, but it is a place where God can hear our prayers. And we get words like this in Psalms. The Lord looked down from heaven. So it is very common to, in, in the scriptures, to equate looking up. Uh, as looking up and praying to heaven, to, to God. But it's saying that heaven is actually not the sky above us, but, but yeah, we can represent that, but the dwelling place of God is something very different. <coughs> and we get it, even into the New Testament, we get the same concept. For one is your Father which is in heaven. So this heaven, is it something we can reach? I've already said that no, it's not. And we see that from these sort of passages. So from the Psalms again, Psalm 103. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. It's creating the concept there, and it's putting across the point of two points that can be as far apart from each other as is possible and can never come close they, these, are, these are two points that are completely separated so in this case it's saying that the sins that we commit God will remove them so far from us that they will be completely gone completely separated and it's saying so is the distance between the heaven where God dwells and the earth and this separation has been caused by the sinfulness of man so when Adam and Eve sinned then it opened up that gulf between man and God such that God and man cannot you know, meet directly because God is sinless and, and uh, eternal uh, and we are unfortunately sinful and very mortal the Proverbs poses this question of us 
Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his face? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? So in this case, the, the writer of the proverb is challenging us. Do we know this? How do we know this? Do, you know, can we work this out? Many people think they do know the answer to this. And they've worked it out for themselves. But actually, this proverb is saying no. We, we cannot say this. All we can do is look into the word of God and then let that tell us the answer. We cannot work it out for ourselves. The statement I would make, and it's possibly, I could have made this talk very, very short by saying, when, you know, when we ask our question, do we go to heaven? I could have said no and sat down. Uh, and that would have been probably one of the shortest um, lectures on, on record. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is nothing within the Bible that indicates that any human that has lived on this earth, other than Jesus, before or since Jesus, has ever entered heaven, has actually gone into the dwelling place of God. You know, we have, you know, people fly in the air all the time, so we'd say that's flying in, in the heavens, or they've gone out into space. But in terms of that place, that dwelling place of God, that separate place, that holy place, no one other than Jesus has ever gone there. <coughs> and we get verses like this that pretty much state it and, and are very unequivocal. No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man is, who is in heaven. Now that in itself can create problems for people in thinking that Jesus therefore was in heaven beforehand and then came down and went back again. Um, and this sort of leads into the concept of the Trinity. But it's quite plain from other scriptures, again it's about reading it in context with the whole of the scripture, that in this case what it's saying is that the Jesus as a concept, his role was present in God's plan from the beginning and therefore that's how he was present in heaven uh, as a concept, as an idea. But then when he was born, he then lived out that life and followed, you know, and actually followed what God wanted of him before he then physically rose to heaven after his resurrection that we wrote, read about in our opening reading. So this passage does make it quite plain that no, no one has ascended to heaven. So it doesn't matter whether we're thinking about King David or King Solomon or any of the faithful men and women that the Bible tells us about in olden days. None of them were talking about or looking for rising up into some heavenly place to be with God. That the, the, the Bible has a very different message about the future. And we get this reference in Mark as well. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. So it's made quite plain that the place that Jesus has gone to is God's dwelling place. It's not just up into the sky. He didn't just get taken to a different part of the earth. He is actually in that heavenly place, that place where God dwells. And we'll re you know, is there now, still. Uh, he was raised to immortality as the first fruits, and therefore he's still there until he returns to this earth, as, as the Bible tells us. Now, God is not alone in his dwelling place. There is uh, a group that is there with him that, that can move between the two um, you know, that can act as his messengers that's what the word angels means but angels within the Bible again is another subject uh, on its own but there can be human angels those who are God's messengers on earth but also there are those who are the immortal angels that you know, carry out God's will on this earth 
And, and we read this in, in Matthew. For in the resurrection they are neither married nor given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So the angels of God in heaven, uh, as I say, it's a subject for its, on it all on its own. These are immortal creatures who cannot sin and are there to serve God on, you know, and do God's will. <coughs> and we get to see that this is a, uh, uh, you know, a very clear teaching of, of the scripture, of, of the nature of the angels. We read this from Matthew chapter 28. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and other Mary to see the, see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. So the angels can look like us, but yeah, certainly in this instance was clearly demarcated by the his countenance, how he looked, how this individual looked, was very different from normal human beings. That uh, yeah, made it quite plain that this was one of God's angels that had come down from heaven. But they can approach God because they are sinless. That is the nature of angels. Now there are a couple of passages which can sometimes cause problems. Again, it comes down to interpretation. It comes down to the context in which they are read. This is one uh, that we read of in the, the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, and we, yeah, chapter 14, and we read these words. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, and didst weaken the nations, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So taken at, in, you know, out of context like this, just taken on its own, it, potentially somebody could look at this and think, well, actually, maybe this is saying, well, um, if, if, uh, is, this, is this an angel that's fallen? It's not God, so maybe it's one of the angels that's fallen down from heaven, and, and maybe that's what we, yeah, we're thinking here. But it's not. This passage, read in context with the passages around it, makes it quite plain that this is actually talking about an individual. It's talking about an individual king who sought, who thought of himself as being equal with God. Who thought of himself in this manner. So it's nothing more than a man. Again, it's about context. It's about an individual who elevated himself and thought that he was equal with God. But obviously was very much mistaken. Now, it might be better for us to actually go to this one, uh, because it's, uh, the writing on the screen might be a, a, little bit, a little on the small side. So this is um, a parable that Jesus taught. So one of the stories that Jesus taught and, and to, you know, to people to try and put across a point. He was trying to make a point. And in a lot of these parables, you know, we see the use of imagery imagery to put across the point that Jesus was trying to make and what we see here is a story that includes two individuals Lazarus and the rich man and we read and we'll just read it through and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off, 
and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou that thou in thy lifetime receivest the good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they may also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So again, if we were to look at this in isolation, we might think, ah, oh, this is describing a literal event, and maybe this is, this is what happens after you die. We have, you know, two places, heaven and hell, and, you know, the good person going to heaven and the, the bad person going to hell. But we know that that's not the case. This was a parable being spoken to the religious leaders of the day. It was addressing them directly. It was using their own imagery and their own thoughts to try and make them stop and think about how they were behaving. Because they too thought that they were saved because Abraham was their father. That they claimed that Abraham, they were descendants of Abraham and therefore they felt that that was all that was needed for them to be saved. And it could also be that uh, the fact that the, at the very end it talks about him having five brethren, it may have actually been pointing out uh, and relating to the chief priests of that time. But certainly we see that this is imagery, partly because we have a, a very a situation that just doesn't um, scan on its own as being realistic. You have the leper, uh, the, uh, Lazarus, in, in heaven but they can somehow see the rich man in hell and they can have a conversation between them. This, just, this does not ring as though this is realistic. This is about putting across a point. This is about putting across a message using imagery. And it is quite clear that this is not realistic. This is not a real situation describing the reality of what happens after you die. That Jesus is making a point to them. He's making a point that... They, these individuals thought that they were saved because of what they knew and because of they had Abraham as a descendant and that's all they needed but he's saying to them no they've got the prophets they've got the bible in front of them let them read that and all that they need to know is in there if they listen to that then they will change their ways and they can have that hope of life eternal in God's kingdom but this is not laying out again it's about context it's about making sure that when passages are read like this, they are taken in context. Now we get also of a phrase in the New Testament, we see the introduction of the concept of the kingdom of heaven. And again, this can cause problems. We read this in Matthew, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now, again, taken on their own, people have interpreted this as a meaning that this is where you go, that the kingdom is in heaven. But the scripture makes it quite plain. There is no mention of this. In that verse in Matthew 5, where it says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. It doesn't say you're going to go to heaven, but the reward is in heaven, in the fact that it's saying that God, who is in heaven, will remember you, and that at the time of the resurrection, we'll come on to that in a second, that that is when the reward will be given. 
Again, we get the, you know, sort of verses like this in Matthew. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust do corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. So it's again not about going into heaven. It's about having treasures in heaven, about having a remembrance in heaven by God. So there's no mentioning again, as I say, of uh, going into heaven, which from one of the readings we had earlier was explicitly stated we do not do. But the bar, yeah, throughout the scriptures we get made quite plain, including in that reading we had at the beginning, uh, you know, in, in the Acts, where it says, where the angels who are, you know, sort of talk to the men of Galilee, it says, they say, why do you look into heaven? The same Jesus will come, so come in like manner. So they make it quite plain that the kingdom of heaven is relating to life on this earth. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So again, it's this concept that our remembrance is in heaven, that if we serve God, we can be remembered in heaven, and that sounds a wonderful thing, but it doesn't indicate that we go there. So what does happen then if we do not go to heaven? Well, the scriptures are quite plain about what happens after we die. Going back to the book of Ecclesiastes, we read these words. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And also their love, their hatred, and their embry have now perished. Neither more will they have a share in anything done under the sun. A very clear and unequivocal statement about the, what happens when we die. So when we die, we cease to exist. But... There is hope. If we, if we stopped at that point, we'd say it's a very hopeless uh, religion, Christianity, if that's all that we, we, we said. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says there is the hope of the resurrection. That literal raising from the dead and a life on this earth. And we look to Jesus. He is the example. It says he is the first fruits of them that slept. He has been raised to immortal life. And he will return again for those that are with him. One aspect that makes this quite plain, yeah, and, and makes it shows that this is how it was understood by the people in Jesus' day. We have the issue, you know, another Lazarus, possibly the same Lazarus. That's that's possibly up for debate, but certainly in this case we have Lazarus, uh, you know, and his two sisters. And in this case, we're sort of you know got an account of what happened after Lazarus had died. He got sick. Uh, and he died and then Jesus knowing this was on his way there but Lazarus died before Jesus arrived and when Jesus arrives yeah, Martha, Lazarus' sister meets with Jesus and says these things then said Martha unto Jesus Lord if thou hadst been here my brother had not died but I know that even now even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God God will give it thee Jesus saith unto her thy brother shall rise again Martha saith unto him I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day Jesus saith unto I am that I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So for Martha, it was very clearly understood. Yes, her brother was dead, but he would have a hope. But not, it wasn't he was alive somewhere else still, but that he would rise at the last day. He would rise when Jesus returned to this earth. That was how Martha understood it. That was her clear, unequivocal understanding. And Jesus doesn't correct her he says no 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 he's, he's still around now no he doesn't say that it would also seem cruel of Jesus 
if Lazarus who was described as a faithful man was in heaven at this point and then Jesus drags him back down to earth to suffer all the indignities of, of, uh, of mortal life because we know that this resurrection of Lazarus was not to immortal life as Jesus's was but to mortal life so Lazarus died again that would seem cruel to take him from a place of, of perfection to bring him back here but obviously that's not what was happening Lazarus had no knowledge from the moment he died to the moment Jesus raised him there was no knowledge there was no understanding he came back to life uh, and you know, then died again at a later date but with the same hope of the resurrection the Bible makes it quite plain that this time will come and it's a time when it will happen for everybody it will happen all at once in one go this is not something spread out over a long period this is an event that will occur in one time we read these words in, in, in the first letter to the Corinthians in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and mortal must put on immortality so we see that there is a, a time a date when this will happen at the last trump when that trumpet sounds that is when those dead like Lazarus shall be raised to this time an immortal life well once we think this we beg the question when well we know that it will be at a point in the future it says with yeah, when it, we just read there in Acts at the very end it says this same Jesus, yeah, he will come, so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He didn't come, he didn't, when he went into heaven, he didn't do it in secret. It was something that people could see, people witnessed it, and so will his return. It won't be something done in secret, it will be done very openly. And we see this also in, in 1 Thessalonians, because we read these words, just the ones highlighted in bold. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. So we see quite clearly that this is a date in the future. When we who are alive. Because it's talking about that. It's talking about a physical resurrection on earth. But it's not going to be something done in secret. It's going to be done with a shout that the whole earth will know about. So therefore this is what's coming. There is a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming on all of us. And this is what we are charged. We, we, yeah, we therefore have to be aware that this judgment is coming. And that it is going to come on the whole earth. There's no avoiding it. But we don't know when it will be. We don't know when it will be. Yeah, we, we, don't, yeah, we are told that in numerous places throughout scripture. We know from the signs of the times that it's close. But we know from the you know, passages like this that it is a date which we don't know so therefore there is that need if we want to have that hope of resurrection of life eternal in God's kingdom then we need to respond to it now we need to act now because it could be tomorrow it could be tomorrow when Jesus returns and then our hope of changing will be gone so what must we do well I think this verse in Mark sums it up quite nicely and he said unto them go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The choice is ours. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe, and details of our meeting times, go to our website 
ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk